we've elected the leaders or we have people running organizations and somehow they weren't up to it. And so now we've got to apply the pressure to change them. But they, they seem pretty resistant to change and pretty uh, hooked on power, as far as I can tell. Kent. Well, where do we start with that, uh, Cameron? <laughs> Hello and welcome to the BMJ podcast. I am Cameron Abassi, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, and today we're going to be talking about uh, the very important issue of intersectoral action. Uh, and it's based on a, an interesting piece written for the BMJ by two of our guests today and others, uh, but our guests today are Ken Hughes and Shaima Kuravilla. Um, and the piece was written for a collection of articles we published um, in connection with the Prince Mayadal Awards Conference 2022. And it's about the world we want. And the title of the article is Tackling the Politics of Intersectoral Action for the Health of People and Planet. So on this important topic, um, welcome Shaima. Tell us who you are. Thank you, Cameron. Uh, I am Shyama Kuruvilla. I work at the World Health Organization in the Division of Universal Health Coverage and Life Course. And uh, I'm also lead on a very interesting new project on setting up a new global center for traditional medicine to bring in the evidence base on that. Thank you. Um, Kent, Kent Buse. Hi. Um, well, thanks for having me. And thanks for... Uh leading this conversation about the paper. My name's Kent Buse. I'm the director of the Healthier Societies Program at the George Institute for Global Health. And I'm in the, um, in the School of Public Health at Imperial College and the Faculty of Medicine at University of New South Wales. I'm a political economist by training. Well, let's begin with intersectoral action. Um, Tell us what it means. The way that it's helpful to think about this sometimes is the way societies are organized or and, and the way people trust government to organize societies is to have a plan and to have certain people in charge of certain tasks. So, for example, we need uh, government support on education or on health or on uh, energy. And so there are whole teams working on these and broadly we could refer to them as sectors and within the sectors there are groups of companies or um, corporations as well as uh, academia and others and when it influences the economy these are called industries but I think at a very basic level it's about how societies are organized with key functions whether it's about uh, education, um, roads and transportation, energy, health, and other sectors. And when we talk about intersectoral action, it could be one of many things, but it could be each of these sectors really doing their roles very well. And together they create a global good or, you know, health and well-being of the society. Or it could be that on certain challenges, these different sectors come together and work together to solve them. So either it's working and doing your sectoral, individual sectoral roles very well, or actually coming together across sectors on a shared challenge. I was thinking about one related to 
AIDS in a 2018 BMJ series on making multisexual collaboration work. And this, there was the example of South Africa where the high rates of HIV infection, especially in adolescent girls and young women was alarmingly high. And the issue then was that it really did need that whole of government response. And one of the options was how do we bring people together around this? So it could be a discussion around reducing viral load or a very biomedical framing. But through the discussions, it became this initiative called She Conquers, which then brought together issues about stigma, about uh, substance abuse, about gender equality, about education, about girls staying in education, and of course, about accessing the health services they need. And I think that was able to mobilize people um, with the government leadership to bring this together. Another example, that I remember, which was quite powerful, was with India and the polio eradication program. And it was literally the last mile. And um, there were repeat immunization campaigns in some of the last states. And, and still there were infections. And with some analyses, it was found that children were being uh, inoculated or having getting the, va uh, the vaccines, but then not um, retaining them because they were having multiple diarrheal episodes. And so the, the central government actually got the water and sanitation department, the education department, the nutrition department, the health sector all to work together. And it was amazing within months that corner was turned towards, uh, you know, eradicating polio. So there've been uh, very powerful examples of why this is important, how it can work well. Uh, but at the same time, we don't want to say everyone should be coordinating all the time because then you wouldn't have time to do anything else except be in meetings or coordination groups. But definitely trying to identify uh, those areas that would add value about, above the work that these sectors have, important work each sector has to do, but how they come together around some shared purposes. Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, one of the barriers that you identify in your paper is lack of political support, and the second one is inadequate leadership uh, and links across sectors. We've talked a little a, a bit about that, but it, it would seem to me that there isn't much political support or will or commitment to working in, a, in an intersectoral way. Um, and so my question is, how do we change that? Um, Chiama, what are your thoughts on that? I think things have to be like the two examples on the polio eradication or on HIV uh, rates increasing among adolescent girls and young women. Um, both from the public, and this is where it's not just a government-led initiative, the leadership um, in many of the country case studies didn't necessarily come only from government. In some cases it did from political leaders, but in other cases it came from civil society saying we really need something to be done about this problem. Uh, or it could come from new research findings. And I think the idea there is then to say uh, on these issues that are really top of mind for our population, how do we come together? And here there is a coordinating role for government, for political leadership. 
But the idea, the initiation doesn't necessarily have to come from there. But then what is really required, as in the UNAIDS example, is to make the institutional environment uh, facilitative in terms of um, big barriers include, okay, how do we organize our budget lines that are all you know, within each sector? How do we, do we have shared missions to do situational analyses or monitoring and evaluation? There is just some day-to-day -day logistical things that with one of our eyes, the institutional arrangements and mechanisms need to be addressed. And of course, then the negotiation, the diplomacy around the interests and incentives. And I think going back to the fundamentals of great leadership and the ideologies and telling a political story that can bring everyone together. I guess the point I want to make and the, the point of the paper in a way is that we're, we're just asking people to, to take a political lens to things. There's been a lot of a lot of the literature that we looked at was really taking quite a technical lens and an, and an apolitical um, look at um, the question of intersectoral action, and we're making a case for um, applying a more political lens where politics is about who gets what, where, and why, and and, and how basically, and and we we're suggesting that in in part I think because we think that the practice of public health needs to be more political. Um, and uh, maybe I shouldn't be speaking for all my authors in this way, but I, I do think that um, we're suggesting that there are certainly, and, you know, Shaima is from the World Health Organization and, and we need a technical leader. And this is not an, a non-technical subject either. We need the technical approaches to these things and we need evidence and foreign policy. But um, what we're trying to suggest is let's, just try to think a little bit more politically at, at what's at stake here. And I think one of the one of the fundamental challenges of doing so is sort of the, um, and I'm getting to your question about what, what will it take politically. Um, and, but, and, I, and I'm saying that because I do think that we need the public health community simply to demand um, intersectoral action to say that, you know, that we've got really important agendas in front of us either on the social determinants, on the commercial determinants, or the shared determinants on the health of people and, and planet, which is what this paper is about. We've got a, a really important rationale for needing to um, open up and work outside and work with and collaborate as a public health community. We have an important job to do in this area and we haven't been doing well enough. And I think that in part... Um, that hasn't been happening, well, for, for quite a number of reasons. Um, but on the one hand, I think it has to some extent to do with the fallback um, sort of position of the, of the public health community to um, acknowledge the social and commercial and other determinants, but very quickly fall back on medical approaches and biomedical approaches. And that's understandable because it's part of the training um, and so on. But what we need to do is demand of the public health leadership to actually go and collaborate with these other sectors. In doing that, yes, it's going to be very hard. But in doing that, we think that one needs to be realistic and aware about some of those politics inherent in those, in, in, in those relationships. And so we therefore, and I think Shamo's getting at this with the framing issue and the providing vision and so on, that 
we can't go to another sector as public health people and say, we think that you should only be measuring your actions by these health outcomes. That's just not realistic. It's not what they're in the business of doing. We need to speak their language. We need to find ways of having, having, having shared goals. Um, and so I, I think um, that... I guess if we're going to, if, if just sort of in a straightforward way, coming back to your to your question around what will it take, um, I think it will take on the one hand public health, the public health community to recognize the truly important um, nature of, of the commercial and political and social determinants of health and reaching out. But I also think that that's, probably not going to happen until there's a huge demand for it to happen. And that's why I think, again, that the climate crisis that's in front of us is the, is the most fundamental threat that humanity now faces, um, other than these existential risks of biological terror and so on. Um, um, but it also provides grounds for, for optimism and that I think there'll be an urgency and demands created for us to, um, for the for the public health community to to respond in in meaningful and strategic ways to make sure that that sort of cooperation and collaboration happens in the future. I agree with you, Cameron. It's not easy. It's certainly not easy. But it's never going to happen if we don't take a political approach and we and we treat these these sectors and these institutions as political actors that need to they need to have wins they need to they need to gain from this and so how do we make sure that there's win-wins that everybody gains in in this picture and that's what the politics is about in yeah. my view yeah um thanks ken so let, let's take that example you just mentioned of, of, of climate change and climate action um if we apply this lens uh, of intersectoral action of um, you know, tackling the politics of intersectoral action. What's the what are the next steps then in terms of addressing the climate challenge? Shyama. Yes, I have a 60 second answer that'll solve all these issues. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've been, we've been, you're the person we're all waiting for. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, but um, I think, as Ken said, with the demand, especially from young people, there's this growing interest, impetus to do something about this uh, and demand. But I was actually just thinking when you were asking this question to admittedly a little utopian mini environment here in Switzerland, in our uh, where, where I live in a commune called Shambhizi, but they've been having a lot of discussions related to climate related, uh, climate change related initiatives. But it's been fascinating because you can talk to people about their lawns and their flowers and how the bees and butterflies, 60, 70% of them have disappeared and the need to you know, grow these. And there are lots of people interested in that. And others who um, you know, during uh, the, the pandemic and the reduction of pollution have noticed reductions in respiratory problems or others who've been talking about solar panels on houses and how you would, the investment you would regain within a year in terms of 
you know, your electricity bills and so on. So there's something kind of from every angle. Somehow, when we go into our text speak, like the net zero, I'm, I'm sure none of these people who are doing all these things and interested in all these things would actually be able to say, okay, what is that? And I think the challenge is on all of us to say we're living in this joined up interlinked society. So how do we make sense of the problems that we all share and what do each of us bring to it, whether we are politicians, uh, researchers, the public. Um, and that's the challenge. I think in the examples that we talked about earlier, it was finding that common purpose and a common language, because I think sometimes the way we discuss these things uh, gets very complicated. Yeah, so if net zero, which is the language that we're all using at the moment. If you think that isn't a language that perhaps speaks to everybody, what language should we be adopting? I think, and, and, and Ken would come in as well, but I think listening to what people are worried about or want to see changed or going back to what Ken said, the world we want, what does that look like? And speaking to those issues and what's not there right now. Um, I think in many of these issues on health and sustainable development, they get driven by a very technical agenda. And I think uh, maybe as academics we, and technical people, we need to step back a bit and get back into making those links across society so that we can support government to, governments to take the required actions, but that their citizens are asking for. But Kent will have... I'm sure more. Ideas. Yeah, well, Ken, on this, you're on the spot now. So what's, yeah. what's the language we should be using? <laughs> well, you know, I don't know in this case if it's necessarily going to be universal. Um, if, if, if it was going to be universal, then I would suggest that we reframe our thinking and we attempt to, um, in as many ways we can, frame all of our issues around um, well-being economies um, and well-being more generally, that we move across from, from away from GDP and measuring our progress um, in societies in, in the way that, that, that we have been. And I think that New Zealand provides a very nice example of um, coming up with a budget, a well-being budget um, that each ministry had to articulate um, how the expenditure and the regulations and the laws that it was proposing to put forward would support that notion of a well-being economy. So, you know, but I don't know if it's a universal thing, Cameron. I'm, I'm wondering if that, that notion of net zero needs to be translated, as Shaima was saying, um, into local struggles and realities and in relation to what, what people want there. I think from a political point of view, it's, it's how do you frame an issue that responds to people's needs and motivates them to act and to make demands of their government so that there will be the protections um, that we all need to, to promote our health and well-being. And, I, 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 and so, yes, there will be some global and universal ones, but but I think more often than not, it's going to be in the communities. Is that too vague? I don't know, Cameron. What's your view on it? Um, well, I think it's a, it's a good answer. Uh, I mean, I, it seems to me the more common language we can use, the better. I mean, overall. But, but I accept that you know, 
every country, every region, every culture, um, you know, may have its own particular preferences. And so that language is adaptable. I mean, for me, talking about prioritizing health and well-being and outcomes related to health and well-being for people on the planet, that should be a universal language. And I'm, I'm interested that you say that's that's something that's had some impact in New Zealand. Um, and so perhaps that's that's an example we need to pick up on. Um, I mean, what you have mentioned, though, is mobilising civil society. And um, I'd like to explore that a little bit more, because ultimately it's civil society that we're speaking to, whatever formula, whatever language we end up using. It's, it's interesting that we're talking about uh, a reliance. You know, we've kind of, our hopes are resting on civil society, on mobilising civil society. It's almost as if we're saying the politicians the, and the political classes have failed us. The democratic process of electing people, putting them in power to do the things we want them to do has failed. And so now as a public health community, we need to come up with the right language to motivate and mobilise civil society to get politicians to do the right thing. If I've understood the argument correctly, I'm not saying the argument's incorrect because we can see, you know, we can see those issues in action all around the world. But in essence, that seems to be the dilemma. We've, so we're putting a lot on civil society, on populations, to to put things right here. But isn't that the kind of basis of our politics, Cameron? In that uh, <laughs> that it's people who elect governments who 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 are who ideally should be saying, this is what we need from this government. And actually in the paper, we also talk about shifting power structures here, where uh, for the first time possibly in history <clears throat> of the world's 100 largest economies, uh, over 70 are actually corporations, not uh, countries, not gov uh, countries. And so um, I think people have a lot of power in that they elect as, as voters to elect governments, but also as consumers to whom corporations are accountable. I just think that there are not, not many countries actually have responsive mechanisms. It's not like anyone has to make people or civil society do things or understand things, but I think it really has to be, the whole equation has to be turned on its head in a way, it's really mm. people who elect governments, people who are consumers of things that corporations uh, sell. And if we can mm. get this accountability equation into everything that we're talking about, I think it'd make a big difference. Okay, well, we'll come back a little more to an example of accountability, which I know you were involved with, um, Shyama. But I, I suppose just to explore this a little more, so what we're saying again here is that, as I said before, you know, elect the politicians, they don't do what you want. So, I mean, you've got to you can you can vote them out, but the the evidence that we have is that that doesn't necessarily happen, um, and it's getting civil society to be aligned in the ways that we're talking about. And then you also mentioned corporations, and in a similar way, when it, and, and climate is something to, it, it has relevance here as well. We're also relying on shareholders and other stakeholders and corporations say, you know, you need to act differently, behave differently, modify your you know your business, so it's um, yeah, so it's compliant with 
with with what we need to do to achieve net zero or to prioritize health and well-being whatever language we use but again it seems to me we're like we're, we're we're not we aren't we're kind of saying we've elected the leaders or we have people running organizations and somehow they weren't up to it and so now we've got to apply the pressure to change them but they they seem pretty resistant to change and pretty uh, hooked on power as far as i can tell kent <laughs> Well, where do we start with that, uh, Cameron? <laughs> I think that um, that as a political, political economist, I'm just quite accustomed to thinking about that's just the way the world is. And that, yeah, there are different political systems. And um, in many of those systems, the people um, elect um, uh members of parliament and the members of parliament are, are meant to to govern and part of that is coming up with legislation and they either they do that or they don't do that there's 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 either pro equity laws or, or laws that aren't pro equity there are laws that are pro environmental protection or there are laws that are that are um, that um, further erode our our, our commons and that that's part of a normal political cycle and those parliamentarians um, are subject to the ebb and flow of, of, of various interest groups that try to get things on the agenda, to try to keep things off the agenda, to try to um, find ways of um, influencing government. And that's just, that's the nature of the everyday life that we, that we live in. And so I think that the history is, suggests that um, different groups in society either benefit or, or lose um, from those politics, and if there are things that some of us believe in, that we need to um, find ways of, of influencing policymakers to do what we think is the right thing. And sometimes that is as consumers, and so it's sort of supporting um, as shareholders or activist shareholders, or it's, it's engaging in the ER, ERG investing, the environment, sustainability, and governance, sort of that those, those um, corporates that are, that are deciding that the future, their future business model is actually improved by acting responsibly for people and planet. There's, of course, a, a large group that don't. And that will also be trying to lobby government not to bring in, in laws that are pro-equity or, or pro-health pro or pro-planet. Um, and that, that that's just part of history. And I think that... Um, that if there are things that, that one cares about, one, one needs to support those groups that are trying to mobilize um, to bring about the right kind of laws, let's say. And we saw it in, in the health area around the disability uh, rights movement, bringing in the, the notion of um, nothing about us without us. They, they wanted a say in the making of policy that they were engaged in. We saw the same thing with the HIV activists, um, with their, their GIPA principles, the greater involvement of the people living with AIDS. And that um, my, my point simply being is, my point being, and I'm going back to this again, if we believe that we need, that our governments need to be better joined up and do health in all policies or the health of people and planet in all policies, if we believe that the health sector needs to reach out then we need to demand it, and we need to do that together with with like-minded groups who, who believe that as well. It's just the nature of of, of society. Mm. Um, politicians won't do this stuff if, if we don't demand it of them. That's my view. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. I, I see that. 
I see that. Um, let, let's take an example, which is um, the Every Woman, Every Child, Every Adolescent initiative. Um, that was an exercise in accountability. I mean, Shama, tell us about that and how that multi, you know, that intersectoral effort um, operated and, and how you um, <clears throat> built an accountability framework around it for health. Thanks, Cameron. Looking back, that was really quite a, an interesting example of what worked and what didn't work in intersectoral uh, action. So the development or the update of this Every Woman, Every Child uh, global strategy, um, Every Woman, Every Child, Every Adolescent, um, <clears throat> was that it was being developed concurrently with the SDGs. And so the Deputy Secretary General Amina Mohammed was actually chairing both processes. And in the shift from the MDGs where the health focus was on very much on reducing mortality and moving to this broader intersectoral agenda, that was quite a challenge even within a lot of the health community. And um, there were these three words when we're talking about plain language that kind of helped bring things, people together. And um, the tagline of the strategy was survive, which is the MDG era uh, agenda, but it was survive, thrive, and transform. And the thrive went into the well-being, the nutrition, and, it, and the transform really went into being actively engaged with society in a transform, transformative world with the environment, et cetera. And, um, not that it had to be sequential because you really do need, as we said, clean water and sanitation to survive as well. But uh, it, it helped br broaden the stakeholders who were involved in that discussion. Uh, what was really innovative is that this whole movement had accountability right at the center. And the secretary general had nominated a group of independent experts to look at the work of all the stakeholders. So not an institution like UNAIDS, but actually an independent group that was supported by all the different agencies and partners who would um, have this dialogue with all the different groups, talk about what needed to change. Um, and and, and um, what has happened now is that both Every Woman and Every Child and the Independent Accountability Panel have been integrated into the broader SDG mechanisms and the SDG3 gap uh, and others. But the fundamental <clears throat> point about there are political commitments made. These have to be justified in terms of the outcomes they expect to achieve. There's a science around monitoring, reviewing, remedying both legal and politically and then acting and then circling back to renewed commitments that process these technical technical aspects of integrating political considerations into our day-to-day -day practices has not yet happened and that's a lesson i think we can take forward which was one of the main recommendations of the panel as well in their final report Okay, that's interesting. So, so quite a lot of progress, but still some more steps steps to go. Um, um, and it's good that you're able to analyse where you've got to and, and the challenges that remain. Um, I, I'm going to come to both of you now for final comments. I mean, we've had, um, believe it or not, we're, we're almost out of time. Um, so um, 
any final thoughts from from you, Shalma? I think going back to a couple of the things we've said in terms of let's look at politics seriously and scientifically, just like we would any other hypothesis or observations. And it would be wonderful if the BMJ continues this emphasis to say, let's study what works and doesn't in politics. And let's find scientific ways of talking about it. And similarly, that we find ways of systematically integrating politics into how we look at problems and, and what you had said earlier, Cameron, make it part of our everyday uh, language because this is really what drives change. Thank you, Shyama Kent. Well, like Shyama, I um, just, I'm very encouraged the, with the British Medical Journal um, taking such an interest in this area. So thank you for that. I mean, my, my, my points that I want to close with, I suppose, are that the status quo simply is not an option. The status quo is not an option. Um, and the, the series that Shaima referred to in the BMJ on the lessons learned was business unusual, if I'm not mistaken. Um, she might correct me on that. So we need really transformative approaches to addressing the social, the commercial, the legal determinants of health. And that just ain't going to happen unless there's joined up government action. Joined up government action, this thing we're calling ISA, Intersectoral Action for Health, is not going to happen on its own. It's challenging for Polish politicians to do it. It's challenging for bureaucrats to do it. We need to recognize that it is difficult um, and that they will need incentives to take that on. And so I think it behooves the public health community to approach that challenge in a constructive and positive way and find allies in other sectors where there are shared goals. And I, I referred to something, and I didn't quite land the point earlier, that I think that there's been this sort of uh, health leadership paradox when it comes to addressing the social determinants, in other words, addressing intersectoral collaboration, because other sectors expect the health sector to come um, in in, a, in an approach that uh, addresses the social determinants. But as I said, there's this fallback onto the um, biomedical approaches that are very much squarely within the health sector's domain. They don't need to go, but the other sectors want them to, um, to contribute and to provide leadership. So I think it's very much around shared vision and finding shared goals and that um, we all support um, those efforts and that we create demand for those efforts. And so it's really a question of how. It's not a question of what our vision is. I think we, we know what needs to be done. It's a question of how do we get that done? And part of that's recognizing the politics of it. Um, and, and so Shyama's suggestion to you to keep looking at the evidence of what works is, is I think, a fantastically good one. And I would encourage you to do that. So, so thanks for having me, Cameron. Um, and thanks for talking about our paper. I've, I've enjoyed talking about it because it's been so long <laughs> since, um, since we wrote it that I had sort of forgotten um, about a lot of what was in it. Well, I'm sure it came flooding back to you, Ken. Listen, thank you for, for writing such a fascinating piece uh, uh, and for joining this uh, podcast today. Uh, in conclusion, I think we can agree that 
we need a, a shared purpose, a shared vision. Um, and, it, and it's down to, as much as anybody, the public health community or the, me- or the scientific community, the medical community. It's an opportunity to show leadership and to mobilize civil society and then influence politicians to support this agenda. And I think um, it's, it's something we very much support at the BMJ. I think without intersectoral action, we aren't going to achieve better health and well-being for people and planet, you know, which is what we've been talking about. Um, so, understandably, politics is a part of that. Commercial considerations are a part of that. The social determinants are a part of that. And these are big, complex challenges. Um, but I'd rather be on the side of people trying to solve those problems um, and, and, and painting a picture of a, of a better world, which I hope we can all do together. And I think as health professionals, as scientists, um, you know, it's our duty to do so um, uh, and, 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 and get civil society mobilised um, in that direction. And then hopefully <laughs> do the, the thing that we really want is to get politicians, um, leaders, um, people heading big corporations, to also then change and and get behind this agenda. So listen, thank you very much. It's been a really fascinating conversation. We're just beginning our work on this um, and look forward to working with both of you, your your fellow authors and the wider community in driving uh, this agenda forward. Uh, So Shyama Kuravilla, Kent Buse, thank you very much. I'm Cameron Abassi. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye, thank you.